Well, welcome. I uh, just want to uh, draw your attention to the journals that you have in your hand. So many of you have uh, grabbed a journal. I'm so grateful for Michelle throughout this week uh, producing this. We had a deadline of Sunday. We made it by about probably a couple of minutes. But we've got it produced, and I want you to be using this over the next 10 weeks because we're going to be in the, the book of uh, Philippians for the next 10 weeks. The first thing you must do, and you must do this immediately, is on the front page, write your name. Okay? Down the bottom there, it's got this journal belongs to. Write your name there, because if we have 120 journals that all look the same and you leave it behind, how do we know whose it's going to be? So write your name there. And what you'll find inside the journal is the text of Scripture on one page and then the particular uh, sermon that we will be discussing on that day. Today we're in an introduction phase, which is page two and three, and you, you'll see as it goes through the journal. So it's there for you to make notes. At the end of the journal, you'll find 10 lessons. Okay, so each lesson is related to the sermon that will, uh, will, be, will be given and the teaching that will occur. Now those lessons, they could be used inside a life group, if you're involved in a life group, or I would encourage you to use it inside your family. You don't have to do all the questions, but grab the, grab the journal a couple of times a week, sit around the table, talk with your children, talk with one another, talk with your husband and your wife, and discuss what God's Word is, is teaching. And the questions will go a little deeper than what I'll go in the sermon. So they're there to extend and, and really to... Uh, help you wrestle with application on a daily basis with the text in hand. So I hope this tool is helpful. We have three left, so if anyone hasn't got one, um, see Michelle. Has anyone not got one on here that would like one right away? Julie would like one? No? Yep, Julie. And um, what we'll do is we'll, we'll copy another 50 this week, and the more will be available uh, for the congregation next week. Great. As you know, we're starting a new series, and for this term, we're going to be studying through this letter, this letter of, uh, to the Philippians. We titled the series, Together for the Gospel, and that will become quite a catch cry as we go through the 10 weeks, and hopefully you'll understand that title the further and the deeper we go into the study. You see, the gospel is not a one-time event. So often we think of uh, that in the terms of our Christian culture, right? That, oh, I've heard the gospel and I've responded to the gospel. Uh, I grew up in a tradition where often we had gospel services, which focused on preaching and proclaiming the good news of Christ. But the gospel is broader, way broader than that, as we'll discover uh, in this letter as you discover right throughout the New Testament. The gospel affects every part of our everyday life. And that's something we, we need to understand. It's not a one-time event. It's an ongoing event. It's part of our sanctification process. It's part of 
being transformed by the Holy Spirit and becoming gospel-centered people. Because when you're a gospel-centered person, you're following Christ. He is the goal of the gospel. One other thing as we, we meet, I want to challenge you, and I did this last week, I want to challenge you to just be reading through the book of Philippians in one sitting. There's four chapters. It takes you 10 to 15 minutes. I want you to do that 20 times over the next 10 weeks, so twice a week. And the other thing I'd like you to do is grab yourself a notepad or whatever and write it out. Write the book out. I, I don't know, I, I do this often. I'm writing through scripture all the time and I find it such a wonderful encouragement to be sitting there looking at the words as I write them. It works for me, it doesn't work for everyone, but I, I'd encourage you to have a, have a go at writing out scripture as well. Now, we're going to go at the start of the series back to the beginning, if you like. And the beginning, as Gavin read, is Acts chapter 16 on Paul's second missionary journey. We have this journey here. I'll move over here because it's easier for me to see. So this is a copy of Paul's second missionary journey. Where he moves from here through, through Galatia, up to Antioch, and he eventually arrives in Acts 16 up in Philippi. So Philippi is that top corner there. Philippi is modern-day northern Greece. As you can see, that's the Greek peninsula there. Athens is down here, and Corinth is down here. Another place that's close to here is um, Thessaloniki, which is over here, or Thess Thessalonians as we know. Thessaloniki is here as well. So that's where Philippi is right there. And you can see that red road there. That's a significant road for the Roman Empire, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But we can... Uh, you have this map in the back of your journal, by the way. So uh, that's towards the end of the journal, and uh, that will be helpful as a reference guide so you know uh, where we're sitting. You see, in Acts 16, we had the command uh, for Paul to preach the gospel in Macedonia. If you, uh, if you keep your finger in Acts 16, that would be helpful today. I haven't put that in the journal, so that's just too bad. But Acts 16. Tells us that um, Paul received a vision, verse 9 of Acts 16, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now this vision is from God. It's, not, uh, it's God directing Paul in this unique way, in this uh, situation. Just remember he's on a missionary journey. He, he's there actually fulfilling the Great Commission. And fulfilling what it says in Acts 1.8. If you want to know the theme of Acts, the entire book, you go to Acts 1.8. This is what Jesus says to the disciples and the apostles. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
at the day of Pentecost, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and at the end of the earth. And this is what's happening. Paul is spreading the good news to the end of the earth. And he has been directed by the Spirit of God, and he's told to go over to Macedonia, which is this northern... Oops, 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 oops. Which is this northern... There, that's Macedonia, northern part of Greece. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So his immediate response. And then as Gavin read, we read, they set sail from Troas, made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Nepolis. So that's once again this part up here, this little bit of ocean they went across. So Troas is there, Samothrace is there, Nepolis is there, and then it's about 17 kilometres from Nepolis up to Philippi. So that's the distance we're talking. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. If you notice, actually, when you read this, you've got a personal eyewitness account of what's going on. You notice that as we read those verses? Firstly, verse 10 says, he called us to preach. So who's the us? There's Timothy there, there's Paul there, there's Silas there, and there's the writer of Acts, Luke. Dr. Luke is with him here. So we have this personal account. We have uh, Luke recording the second journey because he was there. And they go to Philippi. How is Philippi described in this text? Well, firstly, we have a, a quote uh, from a historian, Josephus. He's a Jewish historian, and he wrote about Philippi and said it's a leading city based on the context of civic pride with Greco-Roman antiquity. So the text tells us in Acts 16 that it is a leading city. This is what a historian of the day said about Philippi. It is a leading city with Roman antiquity and civic pride. Now, that civic pride is something that, that will, will come to the fore as we really dive in and study and look at this particular letter. Civic pride. It's um, a little bit like the pride you probably have around a football team. Right? We, we got, we're getting used to this in Australia that, you know, the, the, there's two questions that normally ask, are asked of us. Well, where are you from? New Zealand. The second question is, well, what football team do you, just, do you, uh, do you support? Right? It tends to be in that order. Not, oh, who are you? Who's your wife and who's your kids? It's who are you and what's the football team you, you support, right? And um, so 
and that shows, you know, that shows a pride in, in your football club or whatever. Well, Philippi had a great pride in their city, and their city being Roman. And it was a leading city. We see some of the facts that we're 17 kilometres north of the port. It was first settled in the 6th century, and at that time the name of the city was uh, Kynodais, which meant the springs. And the reason that this city became a leading city was predominantly because there was huge amounts of gold found in a mountain that was close to it, in Mount uh, Pangeo. So hence the wealth of the city grew because the gold diggers came in and they, they wanted to enrich their own lives. By 385 BC, we have uh, Philip II of Macedon. And uh, he is Philip the Great, the father of Alexander the Great. Uh, he renamed the city as he established a settlement of Macedonians there. Why did Philip the Great establish a settlement of Macedonians? He wanted to protect the gold. Okay, that's what he did in 358 BC. He wanted to protect the gold uh, mines from looters and thieves. He wanted to, to have that riches for himself. By 168 BC, uh, Philippi was brought under Roman rule. And this site just north of Philippi became significant for one of the most uh, significant battles in Roman history. It was a battle in 42 BC. If you know your Roman history, you'll know that was when Mark Anthony and Octavian, who later became Augustus, conquered the Republican forces of the assassins of Julius Caesar. So this is where all this history sort of occurred. Cassius and Brutus were, were defeated there. And in many ways, that battle in 42 BC marked the turning point for the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. And little more than a decade later, in about 32 BC, um, Augustus defeated Anthony, his sole competitor for Roman rule. And Augustus turned Philippi into a Roman colony. He renamed it, as you do when you're a conquering soldier, Julia Augustus Victus Philippinus. Now that's a mouthful, right? But he, he was pumping up his own uh, sort of... Uh, <laughs> uh, military expertise, and that's what he called it. And subsequent to that, one of the key things that we will discover that um, when this is a Roman colony, that the citizens of Philippi enjoyed all the privileges and rights of Roman citizens. They were exempt from taxes and governed under Roman law. Uh, Philippi was very much modelled after uh, the city of Rome. There were Roman arches there, there were bathhouses, there was a forum, 
and temples dominated Philippi at the time of Paul. It was a Greek-speaking province, as you have from the, the history of Philip the Great. Latin became the official language of Philippi, although Greek, Phoenician and Egyptian gods had their temples in Philippi. The most significant worship in this city was the imperial cult. You say, well, what is the imperial cult? It was the worship of the Caesar, the worship of Augustus. That was central in the life of this city prior to Paul arriving. And that's an important fact to remember as we see the instructions Paul gives to this church in Philippi. You know, the imperial cult was the most prominent in the city with impressive altars and temples dedicated to the emperor and members of his family. The religious life centred on the worship of the emperor. So you can imagine if you withdrew from that, so you can imagine if all of a sudden the Lord of the universe has opened up your heart to the truths of Christ. What impact that would have on you economically and socially. If you withdrew from the emperor cult, it was viewed as something of a subversive type activity. And you'd be shunned. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So Paul arrived here in Nepalais. He walked 17 kilometers along the Via Ignatia with Luke, Timothy, and Silas, and he came to Philippi. That's the road he would have walked along. Doesn't look like much of a road now, but in its heyday, it was a glorious road. It's part of the Roman road that they, they whacked through uh, their empire for speedy and quick transit by horse <laughs> and speedy and quick transit by foot. That's the road. So we have New Testament Philippi. And some of the key things that we read here are interesting. Because we see in this account in Acts 16 that uh, Paul establishes a church. And it's actually the first church that's established on European soil. So that's why it's so significant. He returned to this church on his third missionary journey. But what Paul found when he arrived in Philippi was a cosmopolitan-type area with Romans and Greeks and Jews. And we know that there's a considerable portion of Romans in this city at this time. You know, they had a great deal to do with worshipping of the emperor. And so as we read through Acts, we see Paul's evangelistic strategy 
roll out in many different ways. When he tends to go into a new town or city, he would spend uh, the Sabbath worshipping at the synagogue. That's not what happens here in Philippi. Note in uh, chapter 16 of Acts and verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So one thing we do know, that if there were 10 Orthodox Jews, then a synagogue would be in the city. There is no synagogue in the city. And uh, so Paul changes his evangelistic strategy and he goes out to a place where he proceeds would be a place of prayer. And this is all moved by the Spirit of God, right? Because then we have this wonderful story of, of Lydia, of Thyatira, a seller of purple, which means that she was actually a very wealthy woman in her own right. This purple thread that came from Thyatira was well sought after. And notice this one line in Acts 16, 14, she was a worshipper of God. We have a, a pagan person who's worshipping God. How does that happen? God reveals himself to her. And then she hears the gospel. And notice this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And that's the way of salvation because at the end of the day, our hearts are so wickedly deceptive, the Lord needs to do work in our hearts to open our hearts so we can receive the good news. And that's what happens here. And immediately she's baptised, her and her household and as well. And, and then she invites Paul to stay with them for some days. So this is the birth of this church. And what happens in, in the story, as we read in Acts 16, that Paul and Silas end up in prison. Why? Because there's this slave girl. And every time they would go to the place of prayer, so it seems to be the, the fact that every day they were going to the place of prayer to worship God and to share the good news. Every day they were going down by the riverside and every day a slave girl who had a demon within her who was enslaved to some owners. And, and, and the, the text tells us that the owners made much gain from the slave girl's demonic activity, particularly in fortune-telling. He made lots of money from her. And it's kind of, you can see as Luke recounts this story, <laughs> I love it, the detail he gives. He recounts this story and he says, for many days this woman kept on following us and crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. It's amazing, isn't it? What demons know. All right? This demon here is, is proclaiming that these men here know the way of salvation. And you'd think that Paul would be kind of encouraged by that. 
No, he's not. He gets pretty brassed off, actually. He gets sick of it. And uh, it has there in verse 18, um, she kept doing this for many days, and, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I think we might have uh, dumbed down the text a little bit there. I think he was really ticked off. <laughs> All right? He didn't need this entourage from a demon-possessed woman to uh, explain to the crowd what he was there for. And so what he does is he exercises the demon. And he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. Amazing. And then what we see is an interesting account, right? Because of that very fact, what happens? The guys that were making lots of money from this fortune teller dragged Paul and Silas to the magistrates of the town and says, these folks are being unlawful. They're unlawful. They're pre preaching the gospel. <coughs> How dare they? They're costing us money. And not only were the owners of the slave girl doing this, the crowd was doing this also and was attacking them. Verse 22. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And Paul and Silas are imprisoned. But you know what? Nothing is lost in God's economy, right? Nothing stops the spread of the gospel. And I think we need to remember that. Because sometimes we are are deaf and mute to the opportunities we have to present the good news of Christ. And we have opportunities every day. As you shuffle around your retirement village, you have opportunities to share the wonderful blessings you have in Jesus. as you interact in the schoolyard with your mates, you have a wonderful opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. And you'll be shunned. It's not an easy thing, right? The response of the crowd and the response of the, the owners of the slave girl will be the responses that you and I will receive every time we proclaim the name of Jesus. But there will be times when that response won't be that way. Because the Spirit of God is working on the heart of somebody. So pray. Pray for those that you come in contact with. I know we all have difficult people in our lives. You know what? When you commit to pray for those folks, it's amazing how your attitude changes. There's only... Lord Jesus, that can change and reform a person.
As we've seen from this here, there's nothing wasted in God's timing or plans. You see, the city at the time, well, that's the prison actually, that they've uncovered in Philippi. That's the place where Paul and Silas were imprisoned. Quite a nice shot, really, isn't it? So not, not much luxury there. Goes down into a cave and into a hole. But what we see here is that these colonies, these cities are run by magistrates. And these magistrates had a particular emphasis on guilds. If you, are you familiar with the term a trade guild? Okay. Yeah, so trade guild, you might have a metal workers trade guild or you might have a woodworking guild or it's a, it's a union of like trades. And this started back in the Roman colonies. They used to divide up their cities by trades, guilds and voluntary associations. Okay. So there's nothing new under the sun, right? We think we're kind of sophisticated here in 2024. This stuff was happening back in... AD 51. And there were four associations that were permitted by Rome. Professional associations like your trade guilds, your working guilds. There were religious associations that were permitted. Okay, so in Philippi, for instance, you could worship the emperor. You could have your Egyptian gods. You could have uh, your Greek gods. But overall, you could only really, you should only be worshipping the emperor. There was also a, a burial association. This is quite of interesting, actually, the whole burial association, because that gave you the right to, to bury someone. All right? So like a glorified funeral parlor. Okay? And then there were household associations. In, um, in these times, it was, it was seen that... Uh, Romans allowed these four things and they saw the earliest church as part of the Jewish religion, which was authorised, if you like. So they left them alone since Judaism was licensed. That was generally around 50, you know, 52 AD. But Rome eventually realised that Christianity was a separate religion and the churches had to find a different way to congregate legally. So what do they do? They go into the house. You see the connection there? By going into a house church, you fulfill the household voluntary association. All right? So when people talk to you today, oh, I just want to go back to the New Testament church. I want to start meeting in a house. Just ask them what voluntary association they're trying to get involved with. <laughs> okay, But that's, uh, that's fascinating because you see that this right throughout Paul's writing of letters to different churches. Predominantly they met in a house to fulfil this Roman voluntary association issue. So what are some of the characteristics of this church? It's a Gentile church, the founding members are Lydia and her household, the jailer and his household. 
We seem to see that women play an important role in the life of the church here. Lydia, Eudodia, and Syntyche will all come across, and potentially the slave girl. Potentially the slave girl may have been saved with this encounter. But that's speculation because we're not told in the text. We also know, as, we, as you start reading through the, the book of uh, Philippians, you'll see that it's a very generous church. It contributed financially to Paul's ministry. At the same time, it was facing oppositions and it was being, facing sufferings. These are key things. And in response to opposition and suffering, Paul calls him to rejoice and be joyful. Right? And it's pretty countercultural. So it's normally if we're facing opposition and suffering, we go down to the garden and eat some worms. We feel sorry for ourselves, right? Woe well, is me. I'm undone. But here, Joy, uh, here Paul says, actually, I want you to be countercultural. Why? Because that's what Jesus was. He gives that example in Philippians chapter 2. And he also gives the example of himself in Philippians chapter 3. And uh, there's internal unrest and disunity within the church. Now, you have to dig it a little bit to understand this, but you'll see that as we go through the letter, particularly between Eudodia and Syntyche, chapter 4. You'll see some in internal unrest. So why write the letter? Paul had just received a substantial gift from the church. It was passed on to Paul by Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus had travelled to Rome. Philipp, the, the Philippian church had, had heard that Paul was now imprisoned in Rome and they wanted to exercise a, a thing of generosity. And We're thinking this is about a year into Paul's imprisonment. And whenever you were imprisoned by the Roman colony, you know what had to happen? You had to pay for your imprisonment. All right? It wasn't state paid. So when Paul was imprisoned, he had to pay for whatever food he would receive, etc. So hence this gift from, from Philippi was immensely helpful. So he writes this letter after he's received this gift. And we'll also read in Philippians 2 that the church was requesting the service of, of Timothy. Timothy was with Paul in Rome, and they're saying, hey, send Timothy back to us. They knew Timothy. Timothy was here in Acts 16, along with Luke and, and Silas, as they found the church and said, hey, please send Timothy to us. We'd love him to be ministering to us. And what we'll see as we read through this letter, that this letter is full of comfort and joy, rebuke and encouragement, doctrine and exhortation. That's what the letter is made up of. It's not your traditional letter of Paul where he loads doctrine at the start for, say, the first... Say, let's talk about Romans. He loads doctrine for the first 11 chapters. And then from chapters 12 to 16, he gives you the practical advice. Well, this is now how you should live. Ephesians is the same. First three chapters of doctrine, and then 
Chapters 4 through 6 are all about, well, this is how you apply the doctrine. This is how you live. Philippians is not like that. It's sort of all mixed up and together. It's all mixed up and together. And as we see, he wrote this letter because the church was facing opposition and enduring suffering. And there was internal unrest and disunity. That's why he wrote the letter. And some of the characteristics of the letter are, are really quite interesting. It's a very friendly letter. You line this up against Galatians, it's way more friendly than Galatians, right? And it's just, it just sees the heart of a pastor. Heart of a, a man who helped present the gospel and birth, birth this church. And he uses this word partnership and participation. Koinonia is the Greek word for this. Koinonia, you've probably heard that in the past. He uses this word and he never uses this in the general cultural sense of the word. Right? The general cultural sense of, of the Greek culture was companionship or community. Paul used this in a far deeper way. When he uses koinonia elsewhere in his letters, he refers to the relation of faith in Christ in 1 Corinthians 1.9. He refers to fellowship with the Holy Spirit or partnership, participation with the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. When he is instructing Philemon about his slave, he, he talks about partnership or fellowship in the faith. And 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we have participation in the body and blood of Christ when we share communion. So koinonia for Paul was a, a deep, deep, uh, sense of faith and fellowship and partnership and participation in Christ. And that's where he goes with these, this term. He's trying to say you have a new citizenship or a, you have an incorporation into Jesus' death, burial and resurrection and his future glory to come. Don't forget that part, right? Whenever we celebrate communion, we're not just celebrating death, burial, and resurrection, but we're also celebrating, I will not drink this until I'm with you in glory. And that is a promise for us, right? It's a glory to come. It's a new relationship based on forgiveness of sins. That's what koinonia is. And secondly, you have in here a real deep love and affection Paul has for the church. He uses a couple of special verbs here, and we'll go through this as we come across the text, but the verb he uses for affection in this verse, in 1.7, is the most expressive term available to indicate the source of human emotion. That's quite interesting, isn't it? And then... In um, 4 verse 1, he uses a verb for, which we translate longing for. It's sort of this thing exemplifies an ancient friendship language. So it's deeply 
a deep-held love and affection for these, these folks. And not only does he uh, hold this affection for them, he also tells others about it. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 8.1, he, he talks to the Corinthian believers and he says this, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, i.e. Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their, extreme, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I, have, I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. That's what Paul says about this church. A generous church. I'm going to leave that here today as an introduction. There are some other things I wanted to say, but I'll weave those in next week. But as you start reading through this letter, I really ask you to just start thinking about some of the things in the background because they will help us unfold the heart of what it means to be together for the gospel. You see, the gospel, as you will discover, is central to Paul's instructions. We all, as followers of Christ, need ongoing encouragement. We all need to be reminded of the humility of Christ. We all need to understand what it means to be a citizen of heaven. We all need to think and consider what growth and holiness looks like. And the, the, the letter of Philippians is really going to deal with that. We all need to be able to stand firm and be of one mind and one spirit, striving uh, side by side for the faith of the gospel. We're to stand boldly before our accusers and those who are against us and have the mind of Christ and suffer for his sake. These are key things which we want to develop as we look at this letter together. I'm excited about what's going to go on in the next 10 weeks as we uncover this and as the Lord shapes us for his glory through the process of looking at his word. Let me pray for us, and as I do, the music team come up. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your written word. We just thank you for the wonderful story in Acts 16 and the birth of the church at Philippi. We thank you for what we've seen and how your hand superintended all processes. There was no synagogue and you provided a riverside. Even in the midst of persecution and imprisonment, you provided salvation. And this church became so generous towards the work of the gospel. And Father, we pray that we will learn lessons from this in our own context. That we'll see 
how Christ is our prime example. And Father, we ask that as we faithfully study your word over the next 10 weeks in this letter, that you will indeed exhort us, encourage us, refine us, call us to repentance when necessary. Father, we want to do all things for your glory. We want to be shaped by your spirit. And Father, this morning we ask that you do a work amongst us. Father, we pray that as a church we will just encourage one another to be reading this letter and to be impacted afresh by your words. We just pray these things now in the powerful name of our risen Saviour. Amen.